Hello, and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Joel. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> How are you this doing? Is... <laughs> I'm okay. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording that. I just, you know what? Normally, I have no problem sleeping. I was a sleep champion for the majority of my life. Sleep. 10, 12 hours at a time, no problems at all. <laughs> Trying to get me out of bed is a nightmare, but lately I cannot sleep. It's no good. It's, it's this it's this pandemic, Julia. Well, my mother would recommend two Benadryl and a shot of vodka. Ooh. <laughs> Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should do You know what? I have, of all the sleep remedies I have tried... I have not tried two Benadryl tried, and a shot of vodka. Tried mixing an antihistamine and alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> no, but you know what? It's worth a shot. Yeah. What else are you doing? Yeah. What else am I doing? So if I, so what if I, you know, slip into a light coma and sleep for thirteen hours? Where am I going tomorrow? Nowhere. <laughs> so, so That's, anyway, how are you doing, Julia? Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's the general like answer mm-hmm. from people. Uh, it's I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Cause what else, you know, and it's hard to come up with stuff to talk about where you're like, well, I moved from the living room to the dining room and then into the kitchen today. And I watched some more stuff on TV. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't mm-hmm. I don't know what else to tell you. I haven't started a small business. I haven't created a, a new hobby for myself. Yeah. I haven't taught myself how to sew. Although Steve taught himself how to sew and has already made us like four masks. Oh, by the way, you guys are getting some masks in the mail. So Great. get ready for that. <laughs> He's a real renaissance man. He really is. He He brought it downstairs to me and I was like, this is really good. He was like, thanks, babe. I was Aww. like, this is your first time sewing something. He was like, yeah, I just, you know, I looked up a pattern online and I just did it. It's like the engineer brain is a, is a miracle. It's a miracle. Well, this, today's episode goes out to all of our friends who are both working from home and homeschooling their children and oh, taking good. care of a million things at their house. Absolutely. Um, our listener and friend uh, Gretchen uh, out in Oregon sent us a request that um, she just wants to put on our podcast and consider that homeschooling for her <laughs> for her kids and mm-hmm. has requested some information about Lewis and Clark. The expedition. Oh, yeah. Um, so I thought about that and I was like, no, you know what? I don't want to focus on Lewis and Clark. I want to focus mm-hmm. on Sacagawea instead. So that's what this episode is. It's called Sacagawea and the One Time Men Asked for Directions. One thing you will discover when you get next to one another is everybody needs some elbow room, elbow room. Now, to start off, I feel like a lot of us were taught a lot of different pronunciations of her name. I yeah. feel like I learned Sacagawea, her heard mm-hmm. Sacagawea, heard... Um, uh, Sacagawea, and mm-hmm. it turns out that in the native languages in which she was a member, there is no soft G in the Hidatsa language. There's only a hard G. And so when you look at how Lewis and Clark recorded her name in their journals, and when you think about um, the letter and the pronunciations in the native languages, there is no soft G. So it would be Sacagawea. Okay. 
Good to so know. So that's how I'm going to refer to her this episode. Perfect. I did a lot, looked a lot into that, folks. I promise. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, we are nothing if not good researchers. Yes. So um, in the Hidatsa language, by the way, Sakaga means bird and Wea means woman. So Ooh. that's the translation of her name. Um, so Sakagawea was born in 1788 into what was likely the Lemhi Shoshone tribe between Kenny Creek and Agency Creek near Salmon, Idaho. She was the daughter of a Shoshone chief. Um, so the Shoshone are a Native American tribe who originated in the Western Great Basin and they spread north and east into present day Idaho and Wyoming. Uh, by the 1500s, some Eastern Shoshone had actually crossed the Rocky Mountains into the Great Plains. They traditionally speak the Shoshone language and and were sometimes actually called the Snake Indians by neighboring tribes and by early American explorers. So in the year 1800, when she was about 12 years old, Sakagawea was captured by an enemy tribe, the Hidatsa, and she was taken from her Lemhi Shoshone people to the Hidatsa villages near present-day Stanton, North Dakota. At age 13, she was sold into a non-consensual marriage to Toussaint mm. Charbonneau, a French-Canadian trader. So... Toussaint Charbonneau, he was a Quebecois trapper living near the Native American villages there. Um, he was born in about 1767 in Quebec, and Charbonneau worked for a time as a fur trapper with the Northwest Company, which was founded as a competitor to the Hudson Bay Company. In the late 1790s, he became a fur trapper living among the Hidatsa and Mandan tribe in present-day North Dakota. Um, he had also purchased for himself another young Shoshone girl known as Otter Woman to be his wife. Huh. Charbonneau was variously reported to have purchased both girls to be his wives from the Hadatsa, or alternatively to have won Sakagawea while gambling. Also, he was not a nice guy. Let's no, he doesn't sound like a super in, great guy. Yeah, he um, he definitely had some things written about him before this time that he um, was violent toward women, violent toward people, uh, that he was stabbed by um, a native elder who caught him in the act of uh, raping a young a young oh Indian girl. My God. So yeah, he he's not a nice guy. This guy Toussaint no. Charbonneau, but. So Sakaguya and her husband and also his other wife, um, they lived among the Hidatsa and Mandan Indians in the upper Missouri River area, which is present day North Dakota. Um, this is known today as the Knife River Indian Villages National Historic Site along the National Park Service's Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail. <sighs> Do you know what happened in 1803 in America? Well, you know what? I'm not even going to ask. In 1803 <laughs> in America, the United States... <laughs> Acquired the Louisiana Purchase from France, yeah. which almost doubled the size of the country. So the acquisition of Louisiana had been a really long-term goal of President Thomas Jefferson. He was especially eager to gain control of the Mississippi River port of New Orleans. So Jefferson tasked James Monroe and ambassador to France, Robert R. Livingston, with purchasing New Orleans. Negotiating with French Treasury Minister Francoise Barbet Marbois, acting on behalf of Napoleon Bonaparte, the American representatives agreed to purchase the entire territory of Louisiana after it was offered. And Jefferson and Secretary of State James Madison convinced Congress to ratify and fund the Louisiana Purchase. So, in return for $15 million, or approximately $18 per square mile, the United States acquired a total of 828,000 square miles of land. Oh my gosh, that's so, long, so much. So 
the, the issue here was that France only actually controlled a small fraction of this area. Um, oh. Most of it was actually inhabited by Native Americans. And mm. for the majority of this area, what the United States bought was the preemptive right to obtain Native American lands by treaty or by conquest to the exclusion of other colonial powers. So they got all of this land, and even though France like didn't have direct control over it, because the United States purchased it, um, that precluded like Spain or you know Portugal or other countries from trying to make a claim on it. Mm-hmm. So the Louisiana Purchase extended U.S. sovereignty across the Mississippi River. It basically doubled the size of the country. Um, the Purchase included land from 15 present U.S. states and two Canadian provinces, including the entirety of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, large portions of North and South Dakota, the area of Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado east of the Continental Divide, the portion of Minnesota west of the Mississippi River, the northeastern section of New Mexico, northern portions of Texas, New Orleans, and other portions of the present state of Louisiana west of the Mississippi River, and also land within the Canadian provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. Wow. Jeez. Also, extra sidebar, Florida was not part of the Louisiana Purchase, even though the French and the Americans seemed to believe that it was. Uh, The Spanish actually had control of West Florida at this time. Um, That's about two-thirds of what's now the Florida Panhandle, as well as parts of the modern states, uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. East Florida had been a colony of Great Britain from 1763 to 1783 and a province of Spanish Florida from 1783 to 1821. Uh, it is interesting. Like now you would think it's so strange that, you know, that everybody was like, oh yeah, Florida's part of it. And the Spanish are like, no, it's not. Uh, <laughs> and now you could just call up Spain and be like, hey, this is ours now, right? And they're like, nope. But then you just walked onto a part of land and you were like, this is mine, I guess. <laughs> like, I, I like guess. there's no one else here. Yeah. Nobody had a map, you know? Yeah. And that's what was very important about about this expedition was mm-hmm. with the acquisition of this land, it was totally necessary to determine the actual boundaries of U.S. land. Exactly. So President Thomas Jefferson hired Virginia's Meriwether Lewis to explore this land, and Lewis sought out frontiersman William Clark to help. So Meriwether Lewis... Um, He's an American explorer, soldier, politician. He was born in 1774. In 1794, as a member of the Virginia militia, he was sent as part of a detachment involved in putting down the Whiskey Rebellion. And in 1795, he joined the U.S. Army, commissioned as an ensign, which is equivalent to a modern-day second lieutenant. And by 1800, he rose to captain, and he ended his service there in 1801. And among his commanding officers was William Clark. In 1801, Lewis was appointed as secretary to the president by Thomas Jefferson, whom he knew through Virginia Society in Albemarle County, Virginia. And when Jefferson began to plan for an expedition across the continent, he chose Lewis. And so William Clark, born in 1770, an American explorer, soldier, and territorial governor, he didn't have any formal education, and he was too young to fight in the American Revolution like his five older brothers. So he was like champing at the bit to to get out there though yeah mm-hmm. um his family moved to kentucky and his brother george rogers clark taught him survival skills in 1789 he joined a volunteer kentucky militia and for several years was involved with northwest indian war also called the ohio war or little turtles war and he was recruited by meriwether lewis in 1803 to join the expedition so enough about them 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, so we've heard enough. Yeah. So the Lewis and Clark expedition technically started in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What? What? When, what, 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 what? Exactly. You wouldn't think it was that that far east in such a cool city. Um, <laughs> so Lewis and 11 of his men left down the Ohio River on a 55-foot-long keelboat on August 31st, 1803. And their plan was to meet up with Clark near Louisville, Kentucky in October 1803 at the Falls of the Ohio before heading toward the Continental Divide and ultimately the Pacific Coast. This expedition was sponsored by the American Philosophical Society, by the way. Ooh, I didn't realize, huh? So the name of their expedition was formerly the Corps of Discovery. <gasps> Ooh. They were a specially established unit of the United States Army, which formed the nucleus of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, there were also several civilian volunteers there, and they were all under the command of Captain Meriwether Lewis and Second Lieutenant William Clark. The Corps' objectives were scientific and commercial, so they were going to study the area's plants, animal life, and geography, and also learn how the Louisiana Purchase could be exploited economically. Um, the U.S. Mint prepared several special silver medals with a portrait of Jefferson with a message of friendship and peace. These were called Indian Peace Medals, um, and the soldiers were to distribute them to the nations that they met along the way. And the hmm. Corps also equipped themselves with the most advanced weapons at the time, uh, rifles and air rifles, in addition to black powder and lead for their flintlock firearms, knives, blacksmithing supplies, and cartography equipment. They also carried flags, gift bundles, medicine, and other items that they would need for their journey. Mm -hmm. So, Jesus, a lot. Yeah, they. Yeah, it, this wasn't just two guys in a knapsack. This was. Yeah. This was a whole army expedition with forty mm -hmm. men. Um, so they led these 40 men in three boats up the Missouri River to what's now Bismarck, North Dakota. And as the expedition sailed up the Missouri, the group met with various tribes of Native Americans. And during the winter months, Lewis and Clark made the decision to camp near the Hidatsa villages, where Toussaint Charbonneau and Chicagoia hmm. made their home. So Fort Mandan was the name of the encampment, which the Lewis and Clark expedition built for wintering over 1804 to 1805. So this was located on the Missouri River, about 12 miles from the site of present-day Washburn, North Dakota. After the expedition had set up camp, nearby Native Americans came to visit in fair numbers, some staying all night. And for several days, Lewis and Clark met in council with Mandan chiefs. Hmm. So in comes Toussaint Charbonneau. Um, he proposes to Lewis and Clark that they hire him as a guide and interpreter. So Charbonneau knew the Hidatsa and the sign languages common among the river tribes. And again, he was married to a Shoshone who could be useful to them as they traveled west. Um, sure. Even though she was pregnant with her first child, Sakagawea was chosen to accompany them on her mission. And Come on. so aside from her value as an interpreter, they expected that her mere presence um, would speak well of them to other Native Americans that they would encounter along the way. Basically, she was serving as a symbol of peace. So a group traveling with a woman and child were treated with less suspicion than a group of men alone. Uh, okay, I see. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So on February 11th, 1805, um, Sakagawea gave birth to a baby boy whom she named Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Um, and by the way, uh, she was given a potion of rattlesnake's rattle to aid in her delivery of this child. What? You know, like, oh, she's having some trouble. <laughs> Why don't you crush up some of that, uh, some of that rattlesnake tail you got there? Just, I don't uh, know. Eat it? You eat it? You uh, it I don't something? know. Is it? Is this know. like a poultice? <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Yeah. 
No thanks. Oh, that poor woman. Um, so their the baby was nicknamed Pomp, meaning firstborn in Shoshone. Um, so that's how they kind of refer to him along the way is Pomp or Pompey. That's kind of cute. Um, so Sakaguya carried him on a cradle board as the Corps of Discovery headed upriver on April 7th, 1805. Again, every member of the Corps of Discovery was hired for a special skill, such as hunting, woodworking, blacksmithing, or sailing. And mm-hmm. Sakaguya was about age 17 at this point. Um, she was the really the only female among about 40 older men, and she proved to be essential to the expedition. She had mm. skills and abilities to offer much assistance. So her knowledge of native languages was a great help during their journey. Um, she was able to communicate with other tribes. She translated some things for Lewis and Clark. And she was also very good at finding edible plants. Mm. Um, on May 14th, 1805, Sakagawea showed bravery and clear thinking that earned Lewis and Clark's praise and gratitude. So her stupid husband, uh, Charbonneau, <laughs> who couldn't swim and was also not good at navigating boats, was steering one of their boats through choppy waters when a sudden storm caused the boat to tip sideways and fill with water. And the expedition's valuable supplies fell into the water and Charbonneau, like froze like didn't know what to do um and one of the men threatened to shoot him if he didn't like fix the issue like with the boat about to tip over yeah um but sakagawea stayed calm she rescued instruments books gunpowder medicines and clothing like she jumped overboard and was like saving this stuff and without these supplies the expedition would have been in serious trouble so the Corps commanders who praised her quick action named the sakagawea river in her honor in may 1805 um, oh, basically, nice. she faced all the same dangers and difficulties as everybody else on the trip, but she did it while having full care of her infant son. And um, by the way, Lewis referred to Charbonneau frequently as, quote, a man of no particular merit. <laughs> so at least they recognized yeah. that she was the brains and brawn and everything yeah. uh, of the operation. And her husband was basically dead weight. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Sounds right. Yeah. So uh, now it's July 1805, and the Corps was paddling up the Missouri, and Sacagawea began recognizing landmarks. Um, there were three forks in the water where three smaller rivers meet to form the Missouri. On August 15th, the expedition met up with the Shoshone tribe, and Lewis and Clark arranged for a meeting with the chief, um, Kamehawait, and Sacagawea acted as translator. As she began translating, she realized that the chief was her brother. What? Who she hadn't seen. Oh, my God. Since she was stolen from her family at age 10. Um, So she ran to him. She threw a blanket around him. She was like crying, tears of joy. Um, During the first of their bargaining sessions, um, she broke down in tears numerous times from the drama of being reunited with her brother. But she resumed her duty as interpreter. And so the Shoshone agreed. Um, so the Shoshone agreed to barter horses to the group and to provide guides to leave them over the cold and barren Rocky Mountains. When the group was near starvation during their protracted struggle across the Continental Divide, Sakagawea showed the group how to dig for roots and find other food to eat. So um, the Continental Divide, it's also called the Continental Divide of the Americas or the Great Divide or the Western Divide that extends from the Bering Strait to the Strait of Magellan and it separates the watersheds that drain into the Pacific Ocean from those whose rivers systems drain into the Atlantic Ocean. So that's kind of how that that line works is like Mm -hmm. what ends up draining to where. Okay, so they're on the mountains. There's no game on top of the mountains. Um, 
the men had been sick for a while because all they had been eating was meat and they didn't mm-hmm. have any like the vitamins that they should be getting from plants. Um, so Sacagawea was able to point out like the inner bark of the ponderosa pine. She also found them wild licorice and fennel roots and wild onions um, Roots that were called uh, white apples, also wild artichokes. So she's like, oh, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'll save your asses again. (laughs) And um, as the expedition approached the mouth of the Columbia River on the Pacific coast, they had run out of gifts and trading supplies. Um, Sakagawea gave up her blue beaded belt to enable the captains to trade for a sea otter for a robe that they wished to give to President Thomas Jefferson. What? Yeah. So she's like, this is my one true possession. And she decided to use it and it helped them for, for trading too. Gave it up so that they could give a coat to Thomas Jefferson, yeah. a guy she's never met. Right. Ugh. So <laughs> this group saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time on November 7th, 1805. Um, and about two weeks later, they actually arrived at the ocean. They held a vote to determine where they would locate their winter quarters. And it is said that Sacagawea was the first woman allowed to vote in the United States on an equal footing with the men. Wow. On November 24th, 1805, they were deciding where to spend the winter on the Oregon coast. So it was recorded that they had enough respect for her to count her um her opinion in the matter i mean it's literally the least they can do considering that she saved their lives numerous times yes yeah so um so this group ended up um, ended up building fort clats up near the columbia river and they stayed there until march 1806 so some good things about this expedition uh They gained an understanding of the geography of the Northwest. They produced the first accurate maps of the area. Uh, During the journey, Lewis and Clark drew about 140 maps, and they were the first Americans to cross the Continental Divide, Um, the first European Americans to see Yellowstone, enter into Montana, produce official descriptions of these regions. Um, They documented natural resources and plants that had been previously unknown to Euro-Americans, though obviously not to the indigenous people. Uh, During that expedition, they made contact with more than 70 Native American tribes. They described more than 200 new plant and animal species. But again, like some not so great things about the expedition. Um, One of the primary objectives, as directed by President Jefferson, was to be a surveillance mission that would report back the whereabouts military strength, lives, activities, and cultures of the various American Indian tribes that inhabited the territory. Um, Mm -hmm. So the expedition was to make Native people understand that their lands now belong to the United States and that their great father in Washington was now their sovereign. Jeez. So, but, so they made it all the way to to the Pacific. But now they have to come back. Yeah. So for the return journey... The Corps divided into two groups before crossing the Continental Divide by July 1806. Uh, One group was led by Lewis, who wanted to explore the Marias River, and the other by Clark. Traveling with Clark, um, Sacagawea guided his group south of the Yellowstone River by recommending a way through the mountains, known today as the Bozeman Pass. Um, Clark's half of the expedition came to a tall sandstone bluff on July 25th, 1806. The rocky outcropping stood almost 150 feet above the surrounding landscape with a foot print that's about an acre wide and Clark named the stone pillar Pompey's Tower after Sacagawea's son. Um, It was later renamed to Pompey's Pillar in 1814. 
And when Clark arrived at the rock, it had already been extensively marked um, with Native American petroglyphs. The local mm-hmm. tribes had known the site as uh, the place where the mountain lion lies, although it's wow. unknown whether this name referred to the existence of any actual animals or to actually the shape of the pillar itself. But Clark left his own mark there, etching his name and the date deep into the rock face. And today, the rock still holds the traces of those petroglyphs and Clark's signature, which is protected behind um, a sheet of plexiglass. And mm-hmm. this autograph is the only remaining physical evidence of the Lewis and Clark Trail still in existence in the wild. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So the groups had split up, but they reunited in August 1806. And they arrived back at the Hidatsa villages two days later. And Sakagawea and her family departed the expedition. Um, So by the way, despite her role in helping the group return safely, uh, Sakagawea received no payment. Um, Her freaking husband, though, Toussaint Charbonneau, was paid $500.33 for his services. That's a lot for that time, too. It was a lot of money for that time, exactly. So from there, Lewis and Clark prepared for their journey back to St. Louis. But before they left, Clark offered to take Pomp back to St. Louis with him. Um, he said he would give Pomp a good education and raise him as his own son. Um, Sakagawea promised she would bring Pomp to visit, but she couldn't let go of him at the time. No, no. Yeah. It's her son. What? Yeah. Hey, give me your kid. I'll take care of him. What? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Get out of here. Um, one crazy fact throughout this whole thing. So this was about a three year long total expedition. Only mm-hmm. one person died. And it wow. was um, on August 20th, 1804. Sergeant Charles Floyd died apparently from acute appendicitis. So it wasn't even like. It wasn't even like from exposure. Yeah, or it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't starvation. wasn't like a, you know, some attack from somebody like this was just like. He probably would have died anyway if he was yeah. at home in his house. Yeah. So uh, Lewis and Clark uh, National Historic Trail, which is administered by the National Park Service, um, it's a it's about 4,900 miles long, extends wow. from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to the mouth of the Columbia River near present-day Astoria, Oregon. And it follows the historic outbound and inbound routes of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, as well as the preparatory section from Pittsburgh to Wood River, Illinois. And the trail connects 16 states and many tribal lands. Cool. Uh, once Sakagawea left the expedition, the details of her life become a little bit more elusive. So, sure. because Lewis and Clark had kept these journals throughout the whole the whole time, and um, they are they were published later on, so it's kind of easy to get your hands on mm-hmm. on a copy and and see exactly where they were and what they were doing each day. So Charbonneau and Sakagawea resided among the Hidatsa and Mandans from about 1806 until late fall of 1809. But then um, Charbonneau, Sakagawea, and Pomp boarded a Missouri fur company barge and traveled to St. Louis at Clark's invitation. And oh. Charbonneau cashed in his payment voucher. Um, so mm. also besides like the $500 he got, the enlisted men were all granted land warrants for about 320 acres apiece. Wow. Oh, my God. So they, you know, they cashed in that land and then turns out that Charbonneau didn't like farming. This, this was not for him. So he Wow, sold- what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he liked fur, okay? Yeah, that's it. The end. <laughs> so he ended up actually selling his land to Clark for $100. Um, Charbonneau took employment with the Missouri Fur Company and he and Sacagawea departed up the river again aboard a company barge 
And this time they did leave their son, Jean-Baptiste, in the care of Clark, who would see to the boys' education at the St. Louis Academy Boarding School. Um, Mm -hmm. So Charbonneau was stationed at Fort Manuel in South Dakota, which was a company trading post. And there, Sacagawea gave birth to a daughter, Lizette, sometime after 1810. Okay. Now, there are some conflicting stories at this point regarding her death. So records from Fort Manuel, where she was living, state that she died in December 1812 of putrid fever. That was likely typhus at the time. However, according to some Native American oral histories, Sacagawea actually died in 1884 on Shoshone lands in Wyoming. Um, But these are, I think, really the more widely accepted theory is that she did die in 1812 because there was an adoption document made in the orphans court records in St. Louis, Missouri stating quote on August 11th, 1813, William Clark became the guardian of Toussaint Charbonneau, a boy about 10 years and Lizette Charbonneau, a girl about one year old for a Missouri state court at the time to designate a child as orphaned and to allow an adoption. Both parents basically had to be confirmed dead in the court papers. So the last okay. recorded document citing Sacagawea's existence appears in William Clark's original notes that were written about 1825 or 1826. He listed the names of each of the expedition members and their last known whereabouts. But for Sacagawea, he wrote Sicargawio dead. Jeez. So just like that. Um, also, he was not, they were not good at spelling things <laughs> so a lot of the times yeah. like they were sounding out like um native american names or people or villages like just as like syllables and it's oh, it can sure. be hard to read at times like they don't spell yeah. um Sacagawea's name twice the same like at oh all. i'm sure <laughs> yeah so Essentially, Sacagawea was instrumental in the success of the expedition and is considered to be the third most important member of the party after the military leaders, Lewis and Clark. The circumstances surrounding her life have become the stuff of legend. And in a period of history in which women, particularly Native American women, were considered Mm -hmm. weak or helpless or dangerous, she proved to be an icon of bravery and adventure. And she is now one of the most well-known and respected Native American women in history. That's cool. A few more things about her legacy. Um, The National American Women's Suffrage Association of the early 20th century adopted her as a symbol of women's worth and independence, erecting several statues and plaques in her memory and doing much to spread the story of her accomplishments. The artwork, The Dinner Party by feminist artist Judy Chicago features a setting for Sacagawea in wing three of the installation titled American Revolution to the Women's Revolution. Her place setting has a beaded cradleboard and hood attached to the top of the plate, uh, resting on a hand-tanned deerskin runner adorned with 40,000 seed beads in a pattern based on traditional Shoshone motifs. And the palette used in the plate, which is yellow, ochre, blue, and lavender, references the colors the Shoshone made with vegetable dyes. Cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, Sacagawea was featured on a dollar coin issued in 2000 by the U.S. Mint, although it hasn't been widely available to the general public due to its low demand. Um, But covered in brass, the Sacagawea coin, um, also called a golden dollar, was made to replace the Susan B. Anthony silver dollar. Um, So the the coin itself, the front is... uh, a depiction of her. Um, there was never any actual portrait of her. So this is, um, just like a guess. Yeah. They, they did model it after a Shoshone woman. Um, Mm -hmm. so at least some of the features should look similar to what she may have actually looked like. Um, 
But on her back is her son, uh, Pompey, and he happens to be the second child ever depicted on United States currency. Huh. The first was Virginia Dare. So in 1937, the U.S. Mint issued a half dollar commemorative coin that depicted Virginia Dare as the first English child born in the New World. So there have only been to this day, two children specifically depicted on U.S. currency. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we as a nation, I don't know if we're ever going to get behind a dollar coin. You know, we're not, <laughs> we're not crazy about change in general. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to happen for us. Yeah. Especially not now. No. <laughs> no, not now. <laughs> now that we have decided that cashless is better for, mm-hmm. for everything. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's you might bad. have one. You might have one at home. Yeah. Um, also, so again, in 1959, she was inducted into the Hall of Great Westerners of the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. And mm. in 2003, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Woo. So that's that's so cool. That's, I mean, unfortunately, like she she died in her like early 20s. And again, yeah. what we know about her is mostly what was documented by um, the expedition, Lewis and Clark. So she might have done a lot of other great things that we just that we just don't know about. Yeah, that we just don't have any record for. But she seemed to live like several lifetimes with this particular oh, expedition. Sure. It's amazing. Yeah. So I think yeah. that it's kind of um, people might sometimes think of her as like the navigator of the trip. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily true. Like there were definitely portions of their journey that like she recognized landmarks or she recognized like a, a way to go based on her previous time living out in in Idaho. Um, but more, more so she was helpful at keeping them alive with food and, um, being like a symbol for peace because she Mm -hmm. was there with her child. Um, she was a good, uh, translator for them too. So Mm -hmm. yeah, again, I, without her, it wouldn't have been nearly as successful a mission. No, I, I think I would make the argument that they would have failed miserably without her. (laughs) I mean, I, I mean, I like to exaggerate for comedic effect, but this certainly sounds like one of those situations where <laughs> she would have, uh, if she was not there, they would have failed miserably, especially with her dumbass she, husband as the yeah, official. She... <laughs> yeah, like that guy didn't do shit. So <laughs> uh, and that's and that's my story about Sacagawea. Yay, that was great. All right. So time for my quiz. All right, Lauren, you're going to do great. All right. I'm going to do good. I'm going to do good on this. All right. (laughs) She said the quiz is hopefully should have made a left at Albuquerque. This is a quiz on explorers. Question one. Best known for being the first person to circumnavigate the globe. This skilled Portuguese sailor was actually killed in the Philippines halfway through his famous planned 1519 expedition from Spain to the East Indies. Name that Portuguese explorer of whom Dr. Scholl's insole commercials of the early 2000s reminded us all. Question two. This British captain in the Royal Navy took a liking to the Pacific Ocean in the 18th century, visiting Australia, New Zealand, and Hawaii before committing a fatal error in 1779, which explorer rustled up a scheme to kidnap the king of Hawaii and instead was killed on the beach beside Keala Keikuka Bay. 
Question three. While searching for a Northwest Passage to Asia from above the Arctic Circle in the early 17th century, this English sea explorer came across a strait linking the Labrador Sea to a massive saltwater bay, paving the way for the North American fur trade. Name that sailor with multiple bodies of water, including a New York River, to his name. Question four. Which Portuguese explorer was the first to link Europe and Asia by an ocean route connecting the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans, and the first European to reach India by sea in 1498? He really got everyone's blood vessels pumping in Lisbon when they heard about that feat. Question 5. This Spanish conquistador led an expedition to Mexico and caused the fall of the Aztec Empire in the 16th century. After all, he wasn't there just to borrow two pints of milk. Who was this explorer and captor of Montezuma, immortalized in a 1975 Neil Young song? Question six. Which African-American was the first mate to Robert Peary on seven voyages to the Arctic over a period of nearly 23 years and may have actually been the first person to reach the geographic North Pole in 1909? No word if he was related to a 20th century puppet master. Question seven. This Norwegian explorer led the first quest to reach the geographic South Pole in 1911, beating Robert Falcon Scott's team by more than five weeks. His expedition benefited from careful preparation, good equipment, appropriate clothing, an understanding of handling dogs, and the effective use of skis. To this day, the scientific research station on Antarctica bears his name. Who was he? Question 8. Journalist Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, better known by what pen name, became widely known for her record-breaking journey around the world in 72 days, emulating Phileas Fogg from that one Jules Verne novel. You may also recognize her expose, 10 Days in a Madhouse, in which she worked undercover to report on a mental institution from within. Question 9. This adventurous Kiwi and his Sherpa companion, Tenzing Norgay, became the first climbers confirmed to have reached the summit of Mount Everest on May 29, 1953. Name this knighted explorer from New Zealand, whose first spouse was named Louise, not Bill. And finally, question 10. We can't forget about space, the final frontier. Who was the first human to journey into outer space, a feat which he achieved on April 12, 1961? I'll give you about a minute to think, and then I'll be back with your answers. This is not this is not going to be my day, guys. 
Not today, my friends. <laughs> I think you'll do better than you think. Uh, I got a lot of empties in my <laughs> in my uh, numbers here. So, mm, okay. All right. Hit me. All right. Question one. Best known for being the first person to circumnavigate the globe, this skilled Portuguese sailor was actually killed in the Philippines halfway through his famous planned 1519 expedition from Spain to the East Indies. Name that Portuguese explorer of whom Dr. Scholl's insole commercials of the early 2000s reminded us all. I mean, it's not Galileo. No. Because Galileo was earlier and also Italian. And also not, um, a, not a sailor. Yeah, true, 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 true. Um, trying to think of my, trying to think of my, you know, I'm thinking of that Seinfeld episode where they're like, who's your favorite world explorer? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I can't think of any of them. <laughs> uh, what about Dr. Scholl's insoles? I mean, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure what that means. Is it shoes? Is it something shoe related? Do you remember there was a campaign where they were like, are you gelling? I'm gelling. Oh, gelling like, like Magellan. Magellan. Yes. Is it Magellan? Yes. <laughs> Ferdinand okay. Magellan. So he was actually killed at the Battle of Mactan in April 1521. Um, there were 270 men who left with the expedition from Spain. Only 18 or 19 survivors actually returned to Spain in September 1522. So wow. So they they circumnavigated the globe in one trip, but mm-hmm. because Magellan had already reached this area from other previous voyages heading east, he received credit for being the first personal circumnavigator of the globe in okay. 1521. But um, Captain Juan Sebastian Elcano completed the Spanish fleet's journey home. Why do we know his name? Magellan named the Pacific Ocean, which was also oh, often sure. called the Sea of Magellan in his honor until the 18th century. The Strait of Magellan was a navigable sea route in southern Chile, separating mainland South America to the north and the Tierra del Fuego to the south. That's named for him. Also named in his honor, the Magellanic Clouds, which are two dwarf galaxies visible in the night sky of the southern hemisphere. Oh my God. Project Magellan, a 1960 U.S. Navy project to circumnavigate the world by submarine. And NASA's Magellan spacecraft, which was the first interplanetary mission to be launched from the space shuttle that was meant to map the surface of Venus. So he's kind of like a big, kind of a big name. (laughs) Yeah, seems like a big name, (laughs) a name that I could not recall. (laughs) I'm I'm counting that as a, as a, I got it though. Yeah, you got it. Counting number one as I got got it. it. Question two. This British captain in the Royal Navy took a liking to the Pacific Ocean in the 18th century, visiting Australia, New Zealand, and Hawaii before committing a fatal error in 1779, which explorer rustled up a scheme to kidnap the king of Hawaii and instead was killed on the beach beside Keala Keikuka Bay. Uh, is this Captain Cook? Yes, is it that is. His name? Yes. Captain James Cook. For more mm-hmm. on him and this incident, check out episode 91, Aloha from Hawaii. It's very good. Question three. While searching for a Northwest Passage to Asia from above the Arctic Circle in the early 17th century, this English sea explorer came across a strait linking the Labrador Sea to a massive saltwater bay, paving the way for the North American fur trade. Name that sailor with multiple bodies of water, including a New York River, to his name. 
Is this uh, Hudson? Henry Hudson. You Woo! got it. In 1611, after wintering on the shores of James Bay, Hudson wanted to press on to the west, but most of his crew mutinied. The mutineers mm. cast Hudson, his son, and seven others adrift, and the Hudsons and their companions were never seen again. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's horrifying. When I was reading about these explorers, like, not... This didn't sound fun at all. No, uh, this is not a lucrative job. Oh my gosh. No, there are so many, so many mutinies. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, I can imagine why, because these people are like this, there's one guy who was tasked with or decided to like do something no one else has ever done. And it always takes longer than you think. So all the guys are going to be like, did you hear that he was like, I'm going to keep going. It's going to take us like four more weeks. We don't have enough food. They drank you all their, to do. They drank all their whiskey in week one. Yeah. And then they were like, I hate this. <laughs> You're dead. <laughs> I'm killing you. Yep. <laughs> all right. Question four. Which Portuguese explorer was the first to link Europe and Asia by an ocean route connecting the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans? and the first European to reach India by sea in 1498. He really got everyone's blood vessels pumping in Lisbon when they heard about that feat. Oh, that's Vasco da Gama. (laughs) (laughs) See, I thought this was the hardest question I I wrote. I got that like that. I was like, that's my boy, Vasco da Gama. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. So his discovery of the sea route to India was significant. Um, It opened the way for global imperialism and for the Portuguese to establish a long-lasting colonial empire in Asia. Traveling this ocean route allowed the Portuguese to avoid sailing across the highly disputed Mediterranean and traversing the Arabian Peninsula. Um, He was appointed a viceroy of India for Portugal in 1524, and he also has lots and lots of things named after him. And also... um, he came up uh, in one of Josh's episodes of Jeopardy that Josh got the answer oh. to and was able to like clinch like being in Good first job. place going into the final. So we're yeah. very proud of our boy. Very proud. <laughs> All right. Question five. This Spanish conquistador led an expedition to Mexico and caused the fall of the Aztec Empire in the 16th century. After all, he wasn't there just to borrow two pints of milk. Who was this explorer and captor of Montezuma immortalized in a 1975 Neil Young song? Okay. I'm, I'm going off of the milk clue. So I'm like, what's Spanish for milk? It's leche. Uh, two pints equals a uh, uh, quart? No. A pint, quart, quart, quart. Okay, quart. It's just like like burning a hole in my computer right now. Um, Court, quarter, quarter, courtier, court, t, court. (laughs) Two pints equals a court. Maybe not a Q. Let's go with a C. Court, uh, Cortez? Is it Cortez? You know what? I'm going to call that. I got that one, too. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Hernan Cortez. Um, For more on the Aztecs and other Mesoamerican groups, see also episode 44, 
MIA civilizations. Um, The song that Neil Young wrote is called Cortez the Killer. And it is ranked number 39 on Guitar World's 100 Greatest Guitar Solos. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look that up. Yep. No, it's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a really long intro. It's like an eight minute mm. song or whatever. Jeez. All right. Question six. Which African-American was the first mate to Robert Peary on seven voyages to the Arctic over a period of nearly 23 years and may have actually been the first person to reach the geographic North Pole in 1909? No word if he was related to a 20th century puppet master. 20th century puppet master. Okay, master. Um, you got uh, who? Mm, you got your uh, hmm. Trying to think of anybody who's had a puppet or used a puppet. Is it um? Uh, well, you got, hmm. <laughs> uh, um, who did the Muppets? What's his name? Is it, uh, yeah, our boy, Henson. Is it Henson? Is it Henson? Is, is that your answer? Uh, Yes. Yes! <laughs> you know what? I'm going to say I got that one too. You got it! <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Henson. In 1912, he published a memoir about his Arctic explorations. It is titled, in his own words, A Negro Explorer at the North Pole. In this, he describes himself as a general assistant, skilled craftsperson, interpreter, and laborer. And he later collaborated with author Bradley Robinson on his 1947 biography, Dark Companion, which told more about his life. So, yeah, when when you think of Robert E. Peary, you should always also think of Matthew Henson. They were basically, like, together for 23 years on on all of these explorations. That's wild. Also, I found out that Matthew Henson is believed to be a brother of the great-great-grandfather of actress Taraji P. Henson. Get out! That is so cool. So that's cool. That's awesome. I couldn't put I couldn't put Taraji in the question. <laughs> no, I mean, that's almost too easy. Yeah. Even for someone like me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question seven. This Norwegian explorer led the first quest to reach the geographic South Pole in 1911, beating Robert Falcon Scott's team by more than five weeks. His expedition benefited from careful preparation, good equipment, appropriate clothing, an understanding of handling dogs, and the effective use of skis. To this day, the scientific research station on Antarctica bears his name. Who was he? Uh, The only name that's coming to my mind is Norgay. Uh, is that even a thing? That's from another question. Uh-oh. Um, oh, shoot. In question nine, I tell you about Tenzing Norgay. Oh, yeah, you did. That's true. Yeah. But, I mean, um, this guy is from Norway. Yeah, that's probably where that came from. Um, trying to think of Norwegian names. You got uh, Edmondson. You got Edmund. Is that it? <laughs> I'd stop you if it was it. 
Edmund, I learned to Edmund. stop you if it's it. <laughs> you got, uh, ooh, ooh, Norwegian names. You got your sons and your Johansons. You got your um, uh, Helmundsdutter. Uh, but that's those are for women. Um, Do you know the name of the research station on Antarctica? Uh, I did at one point because I watched a documentary about it, but it's no longer in my brain. Okay. Uh, uh, what if hmm. I told you that he's uh, the namesake for an author who wrote about characters like Charlie and Matilda? Charlie and Matilda. Oh, oh, uh, mm, you got uh, his name. Just, just give me a second. God. Uh, <laughs> rolled doll. So, rolled, 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 son, rolled son, <laughs> rolled, R O A L D. That's his first name. Oh, that is that's his first name. Uh huh. Okay, rolled. Mm, I don't think I got it. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is not helping me. <laughs> What is it? All right, his name is Rolda Munson. Oh, I wasn't gonna Munson. go. I wasn't gonna get there. So, um, Munson originally set his sights on a conquest of the North Pole by means of an extended drift in an icebound ship, but preparations for his expedition were disrupted when, in 1909, American explorers Frederick Cook and Robert Peary each claimed to have reached the North Pole. So Munson was like, "All right, they already did that." I'm doing I'm gonna, the other one. I'm going to do the other one instead. <laughs> but he kept his revised objective a secret. So when his crew oh. set out in June 1910, like he basically were like, yep, we're definitely going to the Arctic. And then like it, when they left their last turn, right. he was like, JK guys, we're going to Antarctica. <laughs> so his group was um, the, for the first team to, to get to the geographic North pole, Robert Falcon Scott's team um, from Britain was there after him, but they, were like five weeks too late in getting there. And then also Robert Falcon Scott's team, like they all, things went real south for them. Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure they all died. So, um, so the scientific research station on Antarctica is the Amundsen Scott, um, research station and named mm -hmm. in both their honor. Um, I see. Okay. Amundsen also led the first expedition to traverse the Northwest Passage by sea from 1903 to 1906. Um, and he disappeared while taking part in a rescue mission for an airship in 1928. And oh he was, God. in fact, also the namesake for author Roald Dahl. That's interesting. Great. Roald Amundsen, everybody. All right, question eight. <laughs> Journalist Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, better known by what pen name, became widely known for her record-breaking journey around the world in 72 days, emulating Phileas Fogg from that one Jules Verne novel. You may also recognize her expose, 10 Days in a Madhouse, in which she worked undercover to report on a mental institution from within. I, I should know this woman's name. And I don't. And... <laughs> Uh, they should take my woman card away from me. <laughs> they should take a lot of my cards away. I shouldn't have many cards left, frankly, <laughs> because of trivia. But uh, I I know of her. I just can't remember her name. So why don't you just tell me All what right. it is? She's worth us doing like a whole episode on in the sure. future. Uh, her name is Nellie Bly. 
Nellie Bly. Damn it. And you know what? There was definitely a whole drunk history that was yes, very good about her. Exactly. About Damn. the mental about the mental institution one. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, so she was actually from P- the Pittsburgh area to also. Oh, mm. And she um, she wanted to be a journalist. She wanted to be an investigative journalist. She wanted to make a difference in things. So in 1888, Bly suggested to her editor at the New York World that she take a trip around the world, attempting to turn the fictional around the world in 80 days into fact for the first time. So a year later, on November 14th, 1889, with two days notice, she boarded a steamship. Here's everything she took with her. The dress she was wearing, an overcoat, several changes of underwear, and a small travel bag carrying her toiletry essentials. That's it. Like what? Like when my mom comes to visit for the weekend, she has three suitcases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I love how she was like, you know what? I'm just going to stick with this dress. No big deal. Yeah. I'm going to bring clean underwear, which is the most important part right. anyway. And I'm just going to go go with it. Yes. Bless her. Yep. What? That's a minimalist queen right yeah. there. And she carried yeah. most of her money in a bag that she had tied around her neck. Um, During her travels around the world, she went through England, France, where she did actually go meet Jules Verne in Amiens. Oh, my God. That's cool. Um, She went by the Suez Canal, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, and basically the development of efficient submarine cable networks and the electric telegraph allowed her to send short progress reports. Um, She Mm -hmm. sent longer dispatches through regular mail and Bly traveled using steamships and existing railroad systems. She arrived in San Francisco on January 24th. 1890, which was technically two days behind her planned schedule, but Joseph Pulitzer chartered a private train to bring her home, and she arrived back in New Jersey on January 25th, 1890 at 3.51 p.m. Just after 72 days after her departure from Hoboken, New Jersey, Bly was back in New York. She had circumnavigated the globe, traveling alone for almost the entire journey. So she basically took a two and a half month like (laughs) thing in the same dress. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, maybe she bought some stuff along the way. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. I mean, maybe that was it. Like she was like, I'm not. I'm going to pack light because I'm going to buy so many cool right. things while I'm on the road, which is the way to go. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really cool. That's so cool. Really cool thing. All right. Question nine. This adventurous Kiwi and his Sherpa companion, Tenzing Norgay, became the first climbers confirmed to have reached the summit of Mount Everest on May 29th, 1953. Name this knighted explorer from New Zealand, whose first spouse was named Louise, not Bill. Uh, this is uh, Sir Edmund Hillary. Yes. Yes. So uh, they spent about 15 minutes at the summit of Mount Everest. Um, Hillary took a photo of Tenzing posing with his ice axe, but there's no photo of Hillary at the summit. But BBC Mm. News attributed this to Tenzing's never having used a camera before. Oh. Um, Wait, uh, like he couldn't be like, here, you know, hold this down and (laughs) you got nothing but time, guys. Jeez. (laughs) Um, As part of the Commonwealth Transit. Antarctic expedition. Um, Hillary also reached the South Pole um, in 1958, and he subsequently reached the North Pole later, making him the first person to go to both poles and summit Everest. And uh, for more on Everest, check out episode seven, Ain't No Mountains High Enough. It's very good. Finally, question 10. We can't forget about space, the final frontier. Who was the first human to journey into outer space, a feat which he achieved on April 12th, 1961. Is it Daguerre? 
What? Is it Daguerrean? How are, how are you spelling that? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't speak Russian. <laughs> is it Evgeny Daguerrean? Is that a real thing? Hold on. Maybe that's a Star Trek thing. <laughs> <laughs> D-E-G-U-E-R-I-N. Daguerrean. Dick Daguerrean is an attorney. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's it. It's Dick Daguerrean. I was... <laughs> I've been watching too many crime shows and Dick to Karen got stuck in my brain. I lost her. Oh my God. Oh, then I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty sure it was Yevgeny Degarin, but apparently Dick Degarin is a Texas. Like you're, you're kind of close, but I can't give you the credit. That's okay. That's okay. I don't mind that at all. His name is, (laughs) gave me a lot of breaks. His name is Yuri Gagarin. Gagarin. Okay. See, I was on the right, like, I I was in the right region. Well, not really. Okay. But if we had a group, like- if we had a group at a table and you had said Dick Dagarin, <laughs> we would have gone, Oh, no, 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 it's not it's not Dagarin, it's Gagarin. Gagarin. I was close. <laughs> so instead of uh, a Russian um like, astronaut. You were yeah, naming- cosmonaut. I was naming a, a Texas uh, lawyer, <laughs> a criminal defender. Yeah. All right. Please tell me All about right. Gagarin. Right. Yuri Gagarin was a Soviet cosmonaut. <laughs> um, the orbital space flight that he was on consisted of a single orbit around Earth, skimming the upper atmosphere. Uh, the flight took 108 minutes from launch to landing. And oh he parachuted gosh. to the ground separately from his capsule after ejecting at 23,000 feet altitude. Oh my so God. this was like, I mean, there, we've seen movies longer than the amount of time yeah. that he was up in space. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so he was on the Vostok 1. Uh, that was Gagarin's only space flight, but he served as the backup crew to the 1967 Soyuz 1 mission, which actually ended in a fatal crash um, that killed his friend and fellow cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov. And fearing for his life, Soviet officials permanently banned Gagarin from further space flights. <gasps> so he was like, it was a big deal. He was like... yeah. And then the first woman in space, obviously, Valentina Tereshkova on the mm-hmm. Soyuz 6. Um, that was in, that was later on, but. Oh, you know. that's cool. Great. Thanks, there Jewel. That was great. <clears throat> great job, team. Great job, team. I got seven out of ten that time. And you know what? I'm going to count that a victory. You should. <laughs> victory for old LT. Um, so, uh, we hope you all are doing well and that you are washing your hands and you are staying home, stay home, uh, stay home for everybody. Stay home for your parents. Stay home for your grandparents. Stay home for your friends who are, uh, immunocompromised. Come on, people. This is important. So, uh, we're staying home. We're, uh, talking to each other via Skype and it's not as fun as when we're in person. It's true. So if we're doing it, you can do it. Uh, so <laughs> thanks. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this episode about, uh, I forgot how to pronounce it. How do you pronounce your name? Sakagawea. Sakagawea. Yes. Yep. Well, yep. <laughs> it will, it will be here next week. You know, you know, I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? So, uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. Yeah. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.